I'm, I'm, I'm equally excited about this as, as I am about the announcements. Um, I love Sarah's uh, gift of teaching and uh, I'm excited about what she's going to bring. So there's, there's your big build up. It's all downhill now. Thank you. <laughs> Last week, Joyce stood here and said, I'm not a teacher, I'm a preacher. And I want to say I'm not a preacher, I'm a teacher. <laughs> um, so I'm back. I want to say thank you for having me, but then I thought about it and thought you don't really get a choice, do you? Um, <laughs> but a lot of you have been really, really kind and encouraging um, when I've previously shared, and I do want to say thank you for your encouragement. It, um, it really spurs me on. It keeps me um, studying. It keeps me writing material just to know that God's really doing something because it's doing me a lot of good to do this studying and to prepare messages and so on um, and then if other people are being blessed by that then god's amazing right um now i've had this message for quite a long time it started out as a, a fairly short thing in the bible study that we do on a tuesday morning our tea and truth or bible and brew as d calls it um <laughs> And I have Dee to thank for this because we sat in a meeting. There was only about three of us there that week. And I shared what I'd got from this passage. And she sat there and she went, mate, you need to turn this into a sermon. So I laughed and then I, I went, but I went away and I chewed on it and I chewed on it. And I thought, I think, I think there's something in that. I think I can do that. So here we are. This is the sermon that came out of a couple of things from a Bible study. And it's my prayer today that God really uses this to minister to people. It could be the kind of message that um, touches and impacts people right now, but equally it could be the kind of thing that we, we keep in our heads and it comes back to us at an opportune moment. Um, I've entitled this God, Elijah, and Mental Health. Now, <laughs> I said that on Tuesday at the Bible study, and Jules, bless her, sat there and went. <laughs> and when I questioned that, she said, well, you don't like picking the easy topics, do you? Um, so here we are. I'm here with another tricky topic um, because, well, we don't hear a lot said about mental health, do we, from the front of a church? But what I want to do today, like we, we should do every time we approach the word, is to say, what do we learn about God from this we're not looking to learn necessarily about ourselves although we might do that but we want to know what does this passage reveal to us about the character the nature of God so the passage today is 1 Kings 19 and I want to read the whole chapter um, we're looking at it as a whole story rather than getting nitty-gritty on little words and picking apart sentences um, and because of that, I've picked it in the NLT, the New Living, because I just think it makes it a little bit easier to read and understand. So, 1 Kings 19. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he'd killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you kill them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. 
He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. He went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he laid down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by. And a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. When God heard it, sorry, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel-Meholah, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed to Baal or kissed him. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah and said to him, first let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll go with you. Elijah replied, go on back, but think about what I've done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. It's quite long, wasn't it? Who else likes that passage, though? I don't know if anyone else is quite fond of that one. I, I really am. Um, but I want to, first of all, just fill in a bit of a backstory on what's happened before this. Because we, we need to look at these things in context. 
Elijah first appears two chapters before this in chapter 17. That's the first time we come across him. And the very first thing we see him do is to prophesy a drought over the land to King Ahab. And if we don't know that, Ahab is not a good king. He is a bad king. And he is married to Jezebel, who is probably even worse. Um, Elijah tells them, there will be no dew or rain for these years except by my word. Then God tells Elijah to go and hide by a brook. And the ravens are going to bring him food. Now, I sat and I, I thought about that. I said that the ravens will bring him bread and meat every day. Um, and I, I don't know. I thought about that and thought, well, what do ravens eat? They're like crows, right? They eat just about anything. And it, it made me think of roadkill. But then I thought, well, it would have to be chariot kill, right? Um, <laughs> but Elijah is living, he's hiding, and he's living on what's a miraculous diet, but probably not a particularly luxurious diet. And then the brook dries up. Not too surprising because there's a drought, right? So God sends him on his way to go and meet a widow who's going to provide for him. And he gets there. But it turns out that she's only got enough food for one more meal with her son. It's the very last of her rations. And then she's expecting to die. That a little bit awkward that he's turned up at that moment and asked for food. But God performs a miracle. He makes these rations keep going and going. And it's amazing, right? God is able to look after Elijah and he's able to look after the people that are helping him. But then... The widow's son dies. Disaster. Elijah turns to God and essentially says to him, did you do this? And I thought, well, that's very real, isn't it? <laughs> is this your fault? But the important thing is actually he finds the faith to turn around and say, but actually I believe you can fix it. Now we need to keep in mind that at this point in history, no one has ever come back from the dead. Not that I could find. I tried to research this, and I'm pretty sure that at this point, no one has ever come back from the dead. Once you're dead, that's it. But Elijah manages to take himself from a point of going, did you do this, God, to actually, oh, I believe you can fix this. And God does. Elijah sees God raise someone from the dead, very first time that's ever happened in the whole of history, through his prayers. After this, Elijah goes back to Ahab, and he gets him to assemble the prophets of Baal. Right? A, lot of, a lot of us will know this story. They have an epic showdown. So he proposes this contest, Baal versus God. Who can set the sacrifices alight? They set up in the morning, and the prophets of Baal, they go to work doing whatever it is they do to try and call down fire. And obviously, it's not working. And Elijah lets them go on until about lunchtime when he comes along to mock them a little, um, saying, you know, call a bit louder. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's popped out for a bit. You know, maybe he's nodded off. You need to wake him up. So he comes along and mocks them a bit. And then he lets them carry on again until the evening. And they've had no success. And he gets people to pour water over his altar three times, says a small prayer, and boom, God consumes the offering straight away. So next, he seizes the prophets of Baal. I'm assuming he had a bit of help because it says there was about 450 men. 
He seizes them, he takes them down to a brook, and he kills them all. Now, that had to be quite hard work, right? I'm not wishing to be a bit grim, but they didn't have guns or anything. That had to be quite physically hard work. Um, and I don't know how much help he had, but that's got to have been an intense day. However you look at it, that's intense. Then he tells someone out to tell Ahab, it's going to rain, grab your chariot, get going so the rain doesn't stop you. So Ahab rides to Jezreel on his chariot. And then in the last verse of chapter 18, so right before where we come in on the story, it says this. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. So he's just outrun a chariot. He's just seen all of these amazing miracles. He's seen the power of God on display in ways that only, you know, we can only imagine, perhaps. Well, let me not limit it. But he's seen the power of God really, really mighty. And now he's just outrun a chariot. I kind of think he might be a bit worn out, but he, he did it in the power of God, so we don't know. Now, how would you be feeling if you just lived through all of that? God's just brought you food miraculously by the birds. He's raised a man back to life in front of you. He's shown himself in this massive showdown against these false prophets. And then he's given you the strength and the speed to outrun a chariot. How might you be feeling? How do we think Elijah should be feeling? I think it's quite reasonable to think from the outside, Elijah should be feeling quite full of faith, shouldn't he? Or maybe even slightly invincible, because this is the God that's on my side. And this, this is why I love this chapter, because actually Elijah doesn't seem to be feeling any of those things. Something about Jezebel's threat means that he's overcome with fear and he runs for his life. He's just had this mountaintop experience of the power of God, and now he's running for his life full of fear. And I think that's so relatably human. I, mean, I don't know how many times you've been in a place where you know that theoretically you should be full of faith. You might have just had a really amazing encounter with God. He might have just shown you something fantastic or really come through for you somewhere but for some reason, instead of feeling strong, you find you're feeling fearful, anxious, despondent, maybe like you want to hide. Now, I can relate to that. Um, this sense of, I know I should be feeling like this right now. I should be feeling good. And as far as everyone else is concerned, I'm kind of winning at life with God's help. But actually, I'm not in a great place. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, that's not me all the, all of the time, but I've had moments like that, and I'm sure a lot of us can really relate to it. So Elijah runs away. He leaves his servant in Beersheba. He goes off into the wilderness all alone. He walks for a day, finds a tree, sits down, and he asks to die. He asks to die. Does anyone else see a depressed man right there? This is a man who's weighed down by this sadness and this hopelessness that actually doesn't really make a lot of sense on the outside. I mean, yes, Jezebel wants to kill him and she's pretty evil, but God's just shown himself strong and faithful to Elijah, hasn't he? Quite a lot of times. So it doesn't make sense to us on the outside, but to him it's so real that he's practically suicidal. He wants to die. 
And what I find so fascinating in this story, in this chapter, is asking, what does God do when he is confronted with a depressed child? And this is where we're going to learn a lot about the character of God, hopefully. I think the first thing to do is it's quite helpful to look and say, what does God not do? Notice that he doesn't get cross with Elijah. He doesn't come along and say, excuse me, have I not proved myself enough to you? Do you not trust me? I mean, he's kind of got every right to say that, but he doesn't. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't tell him, so. he doesn't tell him to pull himself together. But also, he doesn't leave Elijah there. He doesn't leave him in that place. The very first thing he does is he provides for Elijah's physical needs. Okay, Like a lot of people that find themselves in a dark place, Elijah needs some physical help first. Yeah, he's hungry. He's thirsty. So God gives him food and water. In fact, he does it twice. I want us to notice that the angel of the Lord says to him, get up and eat some more or the journey ahead will be too much for you. Now hold on to that statement because it shows us that God already knows where Elijah's going. So Elijah turns up at a cave after 40 days of walking through the wilderness. 40 days. We often use the phrase a wilderness experience to describe a difficult time in our lives. And, and here we find Elijah's just had 40 days of a literal wilderness experience. And it might sound a bit harsh, but we could say that to an extent he's brought this on himself. He didn't need to go trekking out into the middle of nowhere like that. But his state of mind had pushed him into this remote and this isolated place, and that's where he now finds himself. And he doesn't seem to be doing a lot better either, does he, mentally? So what does God do next? He starts by saying to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, why did God ask him that? Does God not know the answer already? Of course he does. We know from just now that 40 days ago, God knew where Elijah was going. He knew what was going on. And he knew how Elijah was feeling and he knew why. Just like how he knows how we're feeling and he knows why. So he wasn't asking this question for his own benefit. And if he wasn't asking it because he needed to know the answer, he must have been asking it for Elijah's benefit. God comes to Elijah and says to him, why are you here, Elijah? Because God wants to give Elijah the chance to talk. He wants to give him the chance to share how he's feeling. God didn't ignore what Elijah was feeling. He didn't just breeze along and say, right, come on, then up you get, let's carry on. He gave him time, he gave him space to say what was bothering him. And I think we all need that, don't we? And God knows that we need that, and he's happy to listen to us. Now, let's listen to what Elijah says when he replies. He says, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That is not a man that's feeling much better, is it? All Elijah can see is what is wrong. He's completely lost sight of the miracles that God's done. 
the things that he's witnessed, the things that he's been part of, and all he can see is the problems. Not only that, but we can see he's feeling terribly isolated. He thinks he's the only prophet of God left. And I think the enemy just loves to try and convince us that we're all alone in our dark moments, doesn't he? So what does God do next? I find this bit really quite fascinating. Because rather than answer him straight away, he says, come and stand before me on the mountain. Essentially what God says to him is, come here, you need to get into my presence. I think it's a bit like when you come across like a child that's sitting crying, perhaps you say, what are you doing here? And they'll tell you. And then you might say, right, now come here. Now tell me what's wrong. I think that's what God's doing with Elijah. He's saying, come on, you need to come into my presence and then we can chat. God doesn't get cross with Elijah for having things out of perspective, going off at the deep end a bit. He doesn't roll his eyes and say, oh, for goodness sake. No, he says to him, come here. And then he does something really remarkable. Bear in mind, we're in the Old Testament here. This is not something that happens particularly often at all. He reveals himself to Elijah. It says, the Lord passed by. And we have the wonder of God not being in the wind, the earthquake, or the fire. Because actually in that moment, that's not what Elijah needed to meet from God. Those aspects of God's character. He's seen all of the power. He's seen all of the big things. Actually, God knew that what he needed in that moment was something more personal, more gentle. And Elijah knew that he was in God's presence. He knew it because that's why he covered his face up. But this is what gets me. Elijah finds himself in God's presence to such an intensity that he covers his face. But when God asks him again why he's there, he gives the exact same response. And the reason I find this really interesting is that just being in the presence of God didn't instantly snap Elijah out of his depression. It's definitely the best place for him. God wouldn't have brought him into it if it wasn't the right place for him to be. He absolutely was. But at that moment, Elijah needed more still, and God knew that. And I think there's been times in my life where I've thought that perhaps just by being in God's presence for a bit, all of my issues should magically disappear. And then I come out and I find, no, I'm actually, I'm still feeling a bit low, actually. And then you can feel quite guilty, like you're not doing it right. But this, this was Elijah's experience. He gets into the manifest presence of God. And when he's asked what's wrong, he's still seeing all the problems. Now, it's a really, 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 really valuable part of Elijah getting back on track. But it wasn't a failure for him that he still felt low in God's presence. And it was no surprise to God either. It's kind of okay if we don't feel instantly fixed every time we go and spend time in God's presence. I mean, that might happen, and it's really great when it does. But don't let the enemy come at you and say, oh, well, you know, was a load of rubbish then, wasn't it? Look at you. Because that, that wasn't Elijah's experience either. And there's a reason. God knew that that was just the first part of what Elijah needed. It was important. God knew that. But his plan for Elijah did not stop at just getting him into his presence. That was where he comforted him. That's where he gave him the space to express himself. But what God does next 
is crucial to getting Elijah out of the place he finds himself in. Because God gives him something to do. He gives him a job or a purpose. He sends him out. And he's now got two kings that he needs to go and anoint. And, really importantly, a successor. Now, it's worth thinking and stating that actually Elijah might not have fancied doing these jobs. He might have wanted to just stay there and feel sorry for himself. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But he didn't stay there. Whether it was easy or whether it was difficult for him, Elijah did set out to go and do what God had told him. And when we see, we'll see in a minute, he actually ended up with a lot more than he probably expected out of it. Let's also just notice that God took the time just to put some truth in there where Elijah's been believing some lies. You know, Elijah thinks he's all alone. He's the only one left. And God just gently puts in there that actually there's 7,000 others who have not bowed to Baal. So it's really important to bring some truth in when we're believing lies. So what's God given Elijah so far when he's in this depressed and desperate state? He's provided for his immediate physical needs. He's given him time and space to express himself, brought him into his presence. He's given him a purpose and he's spoken truth where Elijah had been believing lies. I think the fact that God sends Elijah to anoint Elisha as his successor is a stroke of genius as well, actually. Um, I think it's a really important factor in Elijah's recovery. At first, I thought it almost sounds a little bit like God saying, oh, you, you know, you want to die. Well, I need someone to take over from you first, so if you wouldn't mind. Um, <laughs> but actually what God gives Elijah is he gives him a friend. He gives him a partner. He gives him someone else to focus on apart from himself someone that he can mentor. He felt alone, so God brings someone else alongside him to support him and to learn from him. And the last verse in the the, uh, New Living says, um, he went with Elijah as his assistant. But actually, if you look in the um, NASB, which is more literal translation, it says, he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. And I love that. Because these are the kinds of relationships we need in life, aren't they? These are the ones where, you know, where we minister to one another. We provide encouragement, help, wisdom, strength. And I think there's particularly something quite valuable in when we join together with people to serve God. Elisha and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha join together for a bigger purpose than themselves. And that's true fellowship. And it's something that God has created for us to enjoy. And it's something that is there to minister to our inner needs. I mean, if we can say we've learned anything from the last couple of years, we have proved that it is not good to dwell alone. God said it right at the start with Adam, and we've just managed to prove it. If we're cut off from each other, if we're cut off from our tribes, the people that we do life with, you know, that's, that might be helpful at stopping a virus from spreading. But over the long term, mental health has, has really struggled in a lot of places for that. I don't know if anyone's come across this term um, called social prescribing. It's, well, in the medical community, it's a relatively new concept um, where health professionals 
can refer people on to a range of non-medical schemes, initiatives, services that might benefit them. Um, I went on to the government website and I pulled this list of examples off. Volunteering schemes, arts activities, group learning, gardening, befriending, cookery, healthy eating advice, and a range of sports. Right. Each of these things gives people opportunity to get involved in something, to find some purpose, to find some friends. Um, and I, I would add that actually serving in church is really helpful with that as well. You know, we're a part of teams here to make something happen, um, but we've got friends on those teams, and it's really good for us. But isn't it quite interesting that God implements something like this thousands of years ago, and we're only just starting to use it in health services now? You know, God's always known what we need. And that's why I love the way that Elijah deals, sorry, God deals with Elijah in this passage, because God provides for him on every level, not just some of them. He provides for him on every level of what he needs. He's ministered to his physical needs. He's given them the chance to express himself. He's brought comfort in his presence. He's given him some purpose. He's given him someone to partner with, to minister to, to receive from. God didn't want to leave Elijah in that dark place. And I'm pretty sure Elijah had to be willing to follow what God was directing. And that might have taken quite a bit of effort. It might have even taken quite a bit of courage. But what we get in the end is this restored servant of God. He's been rescued out of this dark and isolated place. And think about Elijah's legacy. How is he remembered now? This incident, this period of his life that was difficult, this is not what has come to define Elijah when we think about him, is it? It didn't particularly tarnish him either. He experienced this really low point. Arguably, he was suicidal. But his long-term reputation was so good that any time in the New Testament, in the Gospels, any time an obvious man of God comes along, people go and say to him, are you Elijah? Now, we've had quite interesting discussions about that in our Bible study. Like, what, you know, why on earth, when anyone comes along, did the Jews suddenly think, oh, it must be Elijah come back from the dead? What, what put that in their head? Um, you know, because you think about it, John the Baptist the Jews send the priests and the Levites out to him to go and say, who are you? And John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. And so what's their next guess? Elijah. So what then? Are you Elijah? And then think about Jesus as well. You know, he's asking, who do you say that I am? And he gets this response. Some say you are Elijah. I mean, you know, there's a whole weird and interesting topic there. Um, to explore but essentially what we can take from that is the Jews held Elijah in extremely high regard he was not defined by his lowest point he was defined by what God did through him and our lowest points don't define us either wherever you are at right now or wherever you have been at in God that is not your identity So what, what do we do with this? What can we take from it? How do we apply it to our lives? And the first thing I want to, to ask is, how can we look at this example to teach us how to minister to those around us who find themselves in difficult places? 
can we start by having compassion, looking to meet some physical needs, regardless of whether their emotions are making sense to us? Can we give them a place to tell their story, to unburden themselves? Can we help them find and spend some time in the presence of God? Can we help to bring truth in the place of lies? Can we help encourage them to find some purpose and find relationships that strengthen them and help get them back on their feet and feeling useful again? Well, there's always a risk with tackling a topic like this. I don't want to oversimplify the issue of mental health. It's, it is really complex. There's no sort of one-size-fits-all. I'm not suggesting a one-size-fits-all solution here. There's lots of nuances. But what I want to say is that there's some really valuable principles in this story. There's things we can learn about the character of God. You know, he's not going to send everyone off to go and anoint a couple of kings, is he? He's got to have different plans for different people that will help get them back on track. And then the other thing I want to say from the story is, what if I am Elijah? What if right now I'm feeling anxious or depressed or alone, despite knowing that I serve an all-powerful God? The first thing I want to say is pay attention to what God reveals about himself in the story and let it strengthen you. He doesn't get frustrated or cross when his child is struggling. He's got time for his children, and he's got time for you. He's got compassion for his children, and he's got compassion for you. It's his desire to lead you out of that place and get you back on track physically, emotionally, spiritually. That might happen instantly. It might take a bit of time walking with him. He knows everything you need, and he's asking, why are you here, Elijah? So what we want to do is we want to ask the worship team to come back. We've got a song um, which we pray will really minister. And during that time, I want you to feel free. If you want some prayer, we'll have some people kind of over here, I guess. Um, but also, if you know, if you don't feel strong enough to come and actually move yourself down to the front, then grab someone else and ask them, will you pray with me? Because God doesn't want to leave us in the places we find ourselves. He's got plans for us. Yeah, I just wanted to share a bit of a testimony. So when I was uh, 18, I went off to medical school. And um, I got very depressed. I found it really difficult to connect to God. Um, found it really difficult to come to terms with this thing that I'd wanted to do all my life and then I wasn't enjoying it. It was just, it wasn't me. And uh, yeah, I really struggled with my mental health. I really struggled with depression. Uh, got the little blue tablets, did all the stuff that you do and dropped out of university, dropped out of med school. And um, the next year, I, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? Just waste my life. So I went back to university to study something completely different. 
um, having given up on this thing that I wanted to do uh, ever since I was a little kid. And I'm thinking, God, how's, how's this going to turn out? And I, I just did not know how to connect to God. And what was happening is that I was becoming like, I'd occasionally go to church. I'd sometimes look at my Bible, but I wouldn't read it. And um, I was kind of going nowhere in my relationship with God. But there I'm back at university. And one day I was complaining to God. I'm saying, God, I like this. This is like, I'm 19. Is this my life? And uh, he said, okay, go to church. And I'm thinking, I don't want to go to church. And that's as far as I got with God, you know, like I, I didn't know how to hear God properly. I didn't know how to be in his presence. I had no understanding of the Holy Spirit. This is before I ever discovered anything about the Holy Spirit. But I just felt like, okay, if, if there's an answer here, he's telling me to go to church, so I went. And that evening, they talked about that passage that Sarah talked about today. And at the end of it, they said, you know, if anybody's struggling with depression, you know, can you get, put your hand up and we'll come pray for you. So I put my hand up. And uh, this lady came and prayed for me. And, uh, and, and I said to her, I, I don't know how to hear God. Like, it's okay you're praying for me, but I, it's, how, how's this going to help me when I walk out of here and I go back to my university room? And, and she said two things from this passage. She said, even though you don't know how to get in God's presence, he will reveal himself to you. And the second thing she said is this, and when he does, you get involved and you stay involved consistently, even when you don't feel like it. You turn up every week. And so I went back to my room and I'm, thinking, I'm trying to puzzle all this out as any good 19 year old does. And I'm thinking this is all crazy stuff because I didn't know anything about gifts of the spirit, you see. I didn't know words of knowledge or anything like that. And I'm thinking like, man, this is a Church of England church and it's gone kind of a bit crazy. What do I do? And I'm there and I'm going, Jesus, see, if this, if this is real, if, you, if you've got some answers to this, then I need you to show me. So I went to, I went to sleep and uh, the room that I had at university kind of was, it was a quadrangle, so it was around a courtyard. And in the middle of the courtyard, there was a huge tree. And because it was coming up to the end of Christmas term, there was no leaves on the tree. It was just bare. And uh, I, up, I got up the next morning and said, right, have you answered my prayer, Jesus? And uh, he said, you know, I, I thought, right, what do I do? Well, I wash my face. And, and then I opened the curtains and the tree was entirely white. It was covered in white. And during the night, what had happened was that the, some kids from one of the other colleges who didn't like our college had come into the quadrangle and they'd covered the entire tree with toilet roll. 
thrown it over and the whole tree was white so I opened my curtains and all I could see was white and I heard God say I want to redecorate your life I want to redecorate your life here I am and he said but you've got to remember the second thing the enemy loves inconsistency And there'll be a lot of things that are going to try and pull you away. But just like he gave Elijah things to do, he gives us, he tells us to get involved. Even though we don't feel like it, even though we, we struggle, to get involved and be consistent. Just keep turning up, keep turning up. And I did that. So I went along every week. And then I... I met some people and they told me about the Holy Spirit and I discovered the Holy Spirit, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit and I started to understand about God's presence and here I am, I'm not telling you how many years later, but let's say around about 40 and it's been good. But I want to encourage you, firstly, if you're anything like me, just go and get somebody to pray for you. If you haven't got any faith for yourself, get their faith and piggyback on it. And then put some consistency into your life with God. Because the enemy loves inconsistency. But God has something for you to do. God has a life for you to live. And he wants you to live that life to the full. And he wants you to do it with him. So I just wanted to share that because that passage changed my life. It took a depressed med school dropout and, well, made him me. Um, and I'm not, anything, I'm not anything like I was as a 19-year-old. But I can tell you this. God turns lives around. But the most of all, God delights in doing the journey with us walking it out with us day to day, week by week. So if you, if you haven't been prepared, then do what I did. Just stick your hand up and go for prayer. You, know, you don't have to sit there, just go for prayer. And just before we finish, just want to remind you just the thing I said about uh, one thing. If you think you're in that, that group, that, that age range, that... And, and you want to be, want to know a bit more about it, want to uh, be part of it. And I haven't already talked to you because I have actually talked to a lot of people about it face to face. But if I haven't already talked to you, uh, then come and talk to me now, uh, or you know, before you leave today, or just email the office if you've got a dash off, and they'll give you some more information. Um, but yeah. We have a saviour who turns lives around. So Father, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you. And we look forward to this week with renewed confidence in you. We long to meet you, Jesus. We long to know you. 
We long for you to fill our hearts. Lead us in that way, Jesus. Amen.